I'm Reverend Harry Bridge. And I'm Dr. Scott Mitchell, and this is the Dharma Realm Podcast. And we're coming to you from the Kodo of the Jodo Shinshu Center in Berkeley, California. This is the Dharma Realm podcast for April 19th, 2013, and today we're talking about Buddhism and music. So we received a question recently on our Facebook page and uh, asking about uh, Buddhist music, music in Buddhism. Right? It's, it's a pretty big question, which is nice because it gives us a lot of uh, different directions to go in. Uh, and so we're going to be addressing this for a little while. Uh, and so one of the questions is asking about just music in Buddhism generally, historically, modern times, right? And so uh, it's a great question. We've, you know, obviously I think, well, maybe not obviously, but for those that don't know, uh, both Scott and I are very interested in music and its relationship to Buddhism and have approached it in a variety of ways and continue to do so. And so it, it almost seems like why didn't we talk about this before? And maybe we have to a certain extent, uh, but having the question posed to us in this way, I think, has really kind of got us excited, and we have a lot of ideas of stuff we want to talk about. Uh, so today, I think we're going to focus at first on just kind of in general, right, looking at music uh, historically in Buddhism, uh, which is huge, and, you know, we're, we're not like musicological experts on this, <laughs> um, but we have looked into it a little bit, and... Um, I think one of the questions, you could even go so far as, what is music? Yes. I mean, we say music now and think we know what we mean, mm -hmm. um, but I think that actually music is um, very a huge topic in itself. Um, to me, at its most basic, uh, music is, I think one definition you could give is music as organized sound. This is going really broad. Yes, that's right? almost to the point of meaningless. Right. And yet, there's organization right? Some kind of intentionality there, maybe. So mm -hmm. that, like, uh, well, it's interesting, though. So, like, the clacking of a machine, rhythmic clacking, um, you would think, well, that's not organized sound. But it is. It's organized in rhythm. So, and I think some people would say, no, the sound of machines is totally music. Or musical. Or music. <laughs> no, I mean, so then it depends. Issues of intentionality. Yeah, so yeah. we're not going to go that no, far. No, no, no. I, I, would, I would add, though, before we go on, that, um, so that that reminds me of something that I have read from. And I, uh, I've been doing a little bit of research on sort of broader issues of musicology and ethnomusicology. And uh, some folks have been using the word music as a verb. Mm. In other words, it's not music as much as it is musicking. The mm -hmm. process of actually making music, which yeah. brings up that question of intentionality. The rhythmical clocking of a machine might be musical, but it's not necessarily musicing because there's no intentionality behind it. Mm -hmm. Maybe. Mm -hmm. This is, we're going into some uncharted territory. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but some, some interesting things to think about. Yeah. And another really important thing to realize is that recorded music is a recent invention, mm -hmm. um, a little over 100 years maybe. Right, uh, late 19th, early 20th century, perhaps. Uh, and so that's something we take for granted, that I can listen to a musical performance, whether it's being performed right now or not. Mm -hmm. right? That I can listen to a recording of music. And we just kind of take that for granted, but that's recent. 
right? And so uh, that enters into the discussion too. I'm just going to throw it out there for now, but uh, we might come back to that. Oh, I think we should just stick there for a second. Okay. Because of the question that your students asked you about monks. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so okay, so let's go <laughs> steer away from just music and look at uh, music and Buddhism. <clears throat> And uh, I did a class um, this past semester called um, Ritual Practice and Ceremony in Buddhism and um, talked about music a little bit. Uh, and my students were very knowledgeable, you know, Institute of Buddhist Studies students, um, totally into Buddhism, right? Uh, and so a couple of them mentioned, but music is prohibited by the Vinaya, mm -hmm. right? That music is prohibited for monastics in Buddhism. Uh, and so I was like, whoa. Really? <laughs> you know, because coming from Jodo Shinshu perspective, we're not, right. Vinaya is like the least of our worries. <laughs> um, we're not um, focused on that so much. So I hadn't actually heard that. Uh, so I ran to Scott and I said, is music prohibited by the Vinaya, Scott? And I looked it up. <laughs> <laughs> but I want to preface that I'm not a Vinaya scholar and I'm certainly not a Theravada Buddhist scholar, so, uh, which is where this would be most applicable. But there is, uh, as far as I can tell, um, a prohibition. Uh, it's uh, the prohibition against uh, listening to music is part of uh, the context for this. In the Vinaya is, is a much longer list of other kinds of behavior um, that would include um, other kinds of performances, like things that we would consider theater or uh, dance performances, as well as certain kinds of uh, uh, sport activities or watching um, various kinds of animal fighting, like cockfighting or dogfighting. Um, and I. I assume that this list of things that monks are not supposed to do has to do with uh, avoiding certain kind of temptation kind of behavior, right? There's a sort of like, you know, monks should cultivate good virtue and whatnot and engaging in these kinds of uh, behaviors, uh, you know, a way to get you into trouble. And connected to that is that it's not talking about monks listening to iPods, right? right? right. That for a monk to listen to music would require going to a performance. Mm -hmm. And I mean, chances that's, are, you know, yeah. in, in 5th century BC India, if you were listening to music, you were at some sort of festival. And if you were at a festival, that meant there would, there would be dancing, there would be uh, both men and women, there would be all kinds of things going on, not just the music. So I think that we need to understand that context um, for what that prohibition might have been 2,500 years ago and understand that's very different from you know, going to a festival where there's people dancing and there's alcohol and there's food and there's all this stuff happening and there happens to be music and, and whatever else is very, very different from, you know, sitting in your room listening to, you know, uh, classical music on the radio. You know, it's a very different sort of context. <laughs> right, right. Oh, radio brings up an interesting point of that um, it's not only recording, but, you know, re modern times have also brought the ability to broadcast right. sound and broadcast music. So it could still be a live performance in the 1920s or something, right? But you're not at the performance. You're in your room listening to it being broadcast, yeah. simulcast or something right. like that, right? So that's interesting. Another aspect is, well, in, the, in this context, what do we mean by music? Yeah, because the other thing that I would say is that um, most musicologists would absolutely consider chanting music. Um, and even if there's a Vinaya prohibition against music in uh, Theravada contexts, Theravada monks chant. Mm -hmm. So even if there's a sort of, on the one level, sort of a prohibition against music and we don't understand the context for that or whatever, um, there's still the fact of the matter that monks chant. Uh, every Buddhist 
school that I know of does some form of chanting and from uh, you know sort of modern musicological or ethnomusicological point of view that is considered organized sound and is therefore music. Right, 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 right. It might not be music in the sense that we think of music in terms of the you know sort of modern pop genres, but you know it's music. Yeah, really interesting. And so I mean, yeah. And so then you think, what is music for? I mean, is one way mm-hmm. we could think about what's it for? Are we listening to be entertained? Right? Are we listening for something to have something in the background? I mean, that's kind of what we do now. I think mm-hmm. you might go to a concert to um, be entertained and to to watch a band or something. Or you might have music on your iPod purely because you have an hour and a half train ride and you just need something to take your mind off the fact that you have an hour and a half train ride every day, you know, or so you can listen to music. And you may listen very closely and be entertained and be totally listening to the music, or it might just be to have some sound there to distract you or keep you from the larger sounds in the room. Um, Or... Ambient music, I mean, it's kind of an interesting genre of music that seems to go back to like Satie, Eric Satie, and the, um, I can't pronounce the Gymnopodies, or whatever they're called. Um, he made music, and he said, I'm trying to make music that will be like wallpaper. <laughs> so he, wanted, he didn't want people to be listening intently to the music. He wanted it to be part of the, the ambiance yeah, of yeah, yeah. the environment, environmental sound. So Brian Eno picks that up in like mm-hmm. the 70s and come, they come up with this whole ambient genre of music that's not to be listened to, it's to be heard. Right. 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 As part of something else, maybe. Mm-hmm. And so we can take this, what is music for, to certain genres of music and, you know, 2,000 years ago in India or 800 yeah, yeah, years yeah. ago in Japan of, yes, this is a performance, I'm going to be entertained. Mm-hmm. Or... Um, chanting as music, but I don't think that the monks were thinking, oh, yes, we're going to be singing now. We're going to be doing music, <laughs> right? No, we're reciting the sutras. Right, and it's important to know that the reciting of sutras is, uh, I'm going to use the word magical, um, not to belittle it, but to point out that in most traditions of Buddhism, the act of reciting a sutra has efficacious spiritual power, mm. right? Um, you know, In most traditions of Buddhism, there's the sense that if you chant a sutra, you get benefit from that, either sort of, uh, I don't want to use the word simplistic, but a sort of basic, you know, uh, good karma comes from uh, chanting a sutra or merit, to, merit. or merit, yeah. right, or merit, um, or up to, you know, in, in the, uh, Vajrayana or Tantric Buddhism, you know, chanting sutras can have profound uh, transformative uh, properties, which, you know, might be, which is why I use the word magical, but right. in the self or in the outer world. In the world. cosmos, yeah, in the outer world. So, you know, Thinking about what you're saying about the use of music, that's, you know, reciting sutras or chanting is not, the use is, is much different. You know, yeah. it's not this sort of passive ambient noise. It's not to be entertained. It's not like art music where you listen to it intently to, you know, understand some, you know, uh, aesthetic quality to it. It's not simply to pass the time. Right. It's for something much more important, um, much, well, you know, not more important, but something different uh, for a spiritual or religious purpose, um, which is very different from, Listening, you know, I, you know, I, I'd be surprised if, if there are lots of people around the world who listen to, uh, you know, chanting while they're on a train ride <laughs> on their iPods, <laughs> unless that chanting has been repurposed in some other context, which mm-hmm. you know, talk about. But. It's interesting because, um, you know, I'm very fortunate to live in the East Bay, and we have Amoeba um, Records on Telegraph Avenue, and they have a 
one thing you can do is go to the Asian or world music section of your, we don't have local CD stores anymore, but well, we do here, so I'm lucky. Um, and uh, I've done that sometimes, you know, and you go in and you look through for interesting stuff, right? And sometimes you find stuff that's a tradition not yours. Uh, sometimes you find, I've, so I have a bunch of CDs of like Tendai Shomyo mm -hmm. that just are musicological, I think, in the sense that they were recorded in order to preserve this performance of uh, chanting. Mm -hmm. And uh, I have one, I think it's French, and um, one is um, maybe American, and I've seen the Japanese releases. So those are interesting. You know, what was the purpose of recording it? Mm -hmm. Was it so that people could listen to it and be entertained? Was it so that we could preserve this tradition? Uh, and, you know, there's been times when I find the CDs and I think, oh, I'm not going to buy that. I'm never going to listen to it. You know, and there's other times when I get it, I'm like, oh, this is cool. You know, and now that I'm teaching courses on this stuff, I'm glad I have some of these mm -hmm. because I can use it in the context of a class and right. to show students this is connected to the chanting we do in Jodo Shinshu. It's not direct, but what this recording is part of a tradition that affected our tradition, yeah, yeah, you know. Yeah. So it's kind of, I'm glad I have those and you can hear, you know, similarities and differences. And, um, and I'm at the point I mean, come on, I'm a Buddhist geek, right? I, <laughs> I want to find the text that they're chanting. Yeah. I want to look at the, the, um, the not the script, the, um, the score. It's not a score, but that's kind of interesting too, right? In classical oh, music, we have a score. Of, right, the process of actually... Yeah, how is it written uh, down? Yeah, what yeah, are yeah. they chanting off of, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I don't, we don't think of enchanting books of that as a score. Yeah. In a way it is, but it's, it's kind of different too. So it's, it's just interesting. Yeah, and there's a whole, I'm sure there's a whole history there in terms of how things are transcribed, right? And how yeah. things are put to music. And, and how, how are they transmitted? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah you know, we were just, uh, uh, we were just in my office and looking at that little, uh, the book from, I think it was in the 50s or 60s uh, of the, uh, the Shinshu uh, service book. And, you know, they had the Western musical score of the chanting. And it's right, all the right, same right. note. <laughs> right, 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 right. It's the same note. You know, there's no. Um, so it's just it looks sort of strange to see a musical score in Western style notation. That's yeah. just one note over and over again. Yeah. Um, but that's that's how you do that particular piece right right right, right. and um, i think it was the, the rhythm was more important right too. the rhythm is more important right exactly. so that they had so, it with quarter notes and eighth notes yeah, and, yeah, yeah 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 so that's just that, that's an interesting question this uh how we transcribe music and how we uh, uh you know what sort of notational systems we use and um you know from ancient traditions and oftentimes you know and, and other people i've talked to have have done uh, research on music in southeast asia um, buddhist music in southeast asia and a lot of that stuff isn't has never been written down um, until the modern period. Right, so they right. have to transcribe it, you know, either make something up or use right. Western notation systems. And, you mm -hmm. know, so it's, you know, that's a, that's a fascinating. Yeah, There's yeah, all yeah, kinds yeah. of stuff here. <laughs> See, I mean, as well as saying. You're sorry you asked a question yeah. now, aren't you? <laughs> We're going to get, the rest of the year is going to be on this. They'll be like, there's too many episodes. They're all about music. Um, if I could redo my life, for college, well, I would have studied harder. Um, I would have had more fun. I wouldn't uh, can, have been as shy. Can you do both? Right? <laughs> I think you could. Um, I would study music in college yeah, and get yeah, like yeah. a major in music and be a musicologist mm -hmm. and then become a minister and then do my PhD work on Jodo Shinshu chanting tradition, mm, Nishi yeah, Honganji. Yeah. That would be awesome oh there's still time dude you can do it no way i can't get a phd <laughs> at this point i'm just no i can't 
I, I would have to change certain, tweak certain things in, earlier in life too. So I, and it's not going to happen. But so, so that's definitely where a lot of my interest lies, mm-hmm. right? Um, and one interesting thing that, um, so, so I'm a dilettante. I'm, I'm like in a lot of ways. I've finally realized um, if I enjoy something, just get into it, read about it, um, explore it, learn as much as I can. I'm not going to get another master's degree in music or something, you know, but I'm, so Japanese music, for example, and, you know, dive into Japanese music a little more bit by bit where I'm interested in. So um, in preparation for the uh, seminar I did up in Seattle, I read up a lot on Japanese music and like biwa, the whole biwa tradition of the, the um, blind monks who would, biwa hoshi, who would go out and recite the um, heike monogatari with their biwa, the lute kind of thing. Uh, but one really interesting thing that came up in my studies is Meiji Restoration. You know, Japan's been isolated for almost 300 years and then cracked open by the U.S. Mm-hmm. I think it's 20th century when they come up with a national education program in the music part, no traditional music was included. Oh, yeah. They went 100% Western music. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to study a Japanese instrument, you had to do private instruction. Mm-hmm. It was not taught in the public school system, which is really interesting. So you think, how horrible. You know, why didn't they try and preserve it? But I was talking to someone else uh, who is a musician and um, has studied this stuff. Uh, and he was saying, yeah, part of the problem is that each instrument in Japanese music has its own notation system. <laughs> so a shamisen has like tablature, which is showing the actual neck and the frets, and it shows you the number of the fret to play. Shakuhachi has like the holes, mm-hmm. you know, so it's showing what holes to cover. And so it's kind of a problem because right. there's no standardized thing. Yeah. But what I realized is, and yet maybe because it wasn't institutionalized, we've maintained these unique traditions. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's like this double-edged sword yeah, yeah, where it's yeah. like sometimes it's better to leave it alone as long as it survives. If it dies out, that's a problem. Yeah. But if it's managed to keep going, then maybe it's better that it wasn't institutionalized. So they didn't come up with some Western notation for these instruments. That'd be horrible. <laughs> um, you know, and so that's you know, an issue of like trying to preserve this stuff. In one sense, just unifying everything. Let's just have one system. Sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. But then you can obliterate the diversity and you can obliterate the uniqueness uh, of the instrumentation. And, and I'm finding that with the chanting uh, in Nishi, in Jodo Shinshu, in our BCA. Um, how do we do this in a way that people can understand? So it's not all in Japanese, but I do not want to do Western notation. To me, mm-hmm. that would be the worst thing we could do to put things in Western notation. Because partly much fewer people can read music now. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. So why use a why system that's going on the, on the outs? Uh, and then uh, another is, it's, a, it's an approximation. Mm-hmm. This stuff wasn't written in Western notation, and so you're trying to cram a round peg into a square hole. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, with the, to the chanting thing, I think the, the, the part of the... I don't know, it seems like there's this uh, concern to do something about chanting, but there are sort of people don't uh, are not identifying the actual problem mm-hmm. um like there's this desire to you know put the chanting onto western notation or um you know people are always translating the sutras so that as you're chanting them you can you know somehow like what are you supposed to do like chant and read the english at the same time so you understand what you're chanting and you know and this or you know and people say this in japan too right where they say oh you're chanting in 
not modern Japanese, but in classical Japanese. So nobody understands them there either. And it's, you know, this whole Chinese, basically. Yeah, basically. Right. So it's like, you're not even, no one really understands what they're saying as they're chanting. And there's a sort of like desire to understand what you're doing or to translate it into uh, some other context. Um, and I think that that is all sort of, uh, like it's sort of missing the point. Um, I think that you can make a really strong case. And this goes back to that idea of the use of music that you don't, chant these things in order to intellectually understand them on a sort of rational, logical level. You know, there's the act of chanting itself, which has some sort of transformative effect, arguably, on the person as a spiritual being that is not on the level of sort of rational uh, thought. And so, you know, all of this effort to translate things or to make it more readable in Western music or, or whatever else is sort of like, well, that's not, that's not the point. The point isn't to help people understand it. The point is just to do it. The point is to actually do the chanting. And in the act of doing it, then something happens that is ineffable and is not, you know, and, and, and you know, and this is something that, um, uh, uh, this is an idea I actually got from, uh, uh, the late Leslie Kawamura up in Canada who has said similar things about, you know, we spend too much time worrying about trying to understand the sutras and that's not the point. The point is to just chant. Mm-hmm. And the act of doing it is the thing. You know, this right. is the basic Buddhist idea, right? Just practice. Right, maybe. Like don't, you know, get out of your own way, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Too much intellectualizing. Mm-hmm. So, you know, translate things, whatever. That doesn't bother me. That's not the point. <laughs> right, 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 right. But I think there's two, I see two things going on in what you're saying, though. Yeah, the translation is one issue, mm-hmm. but the notation is another, mm-hmm. right? And so we can, we don't have to translate any of it, but if it's not notated in a way that people understand, can read, then it's useless, mm-hmm. right? So to me, the notation is separate from the translation. Yeah. Um, and so it's, but that's one of the struggles we're having is, uh, we have very little standardization over here, mm-hmm. and I'm doing a lot of training of people who are either minister's assistants or ministerial aspirants. Mm-hmm. And so if they're going to get tokudo, I mean, it's, it's kind of this cultural thing, too, where it's like, what we do over here is one thing, but if you want to get ordained, you still have to go to Japan, so you have to bump up to the level of you can do it over there, and they have a very high expectation. Sure. Right, and so uh, it's kind of interesting to think about that too. So I'm doing this hardcore stuff with people here, and you know ministers are doing that in their temples too for a small dedicated group. Mm-hmm. But then that's definitely not going out to the uh, the rest of the membership. Um, and so so it's interesting. There's a lot of issues yeah, going yeah, on yeah. with that. But, but it's, to me, like to 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 do use Western style notation, you still have to train people how to read music. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. You know That's what I'm saying. Why I'm, so I'm, it's like, yeah, I never use Western. To, to me, you know, it doesn't really matter what style of notation you use in order to, you know, to do the chanting. Most people are still going to have to learn that because we are unfortunately at a point in our culture where most people don't know how to read music. Right. Period. Regardless right. of what style of notation you're talking about. Right. So somebody, you know, a minister's assistant or a minister coming in to learn how to do chanting is still going to have to not only learn the chant but also learn the notational style. Right. So use Western style music, use traditional style, whatever. Like you know, like they're still going to have to learn how to read it no matter what. Right. Um, because that's that's just not part of how we are grown up anymore. You know. Right. It's a shame, really. I mean, you know, my uh, we've been uh, my wife and I've been trying to do lots more musical stuff with our daughter, and it's, it's we're realizing that like people just don't learn how to read music anymore. Yeah, yeah. It's just not part of our culture. You know, it's interesting. Part of that is related to the piano, mm. because like we kind of mentioned earlier, in the olden days, 
talking 18th century and before, or 19th, 19th century and before, before yeah, yeah. you had to go to a concert in order to hear music. Mm-hmm. There's this whole thing, and I don't know exactly when it happens, but certainly by late 19th century, where if you have a piano in your house and somebody has printed the music and you can read it, you can have a concert at home. Oh, you yeah, don't need yeah, to yeah. go out. Right? Yeah. And so there's this whole thing of music studies of like the printing of music. So technology, mm-hmm. printing, small piano to have in your home, mm-hmm. right? And so that by 20, early 20th century, through the first half at least, right? Yeah, so totally Having was, a piano yeah. in your home was a kind of a good thing. Like, yeah, that was a, a, big a lot deal. of people, a lot of middle class people through the Victorian era up to the you know, beginning of the 20th century had a piano in their home, absolutely. Yeah. And they would grow up. You know, and, and part of that, too, probably has to do with other leisure activities, right? We probably mm-hmm. have to contextualize that in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, 150 years ago, you know, you couldn't turn the TV on at night and right. entertain yourself that way. You know, the family would entertain themselves in some other way, which would probably include uh, musical performances, right? Yeah. So we have to understand that, too. Yeah. Larger cultural shifts. Absolutely. Um, and then look at, what, 50s? Yeah. TV, right. 60s, right. you know, radio and TV and more and more and more and records mm-hmm. and all that kind of stuff, right? So, you, yeah, you can listen to music now. Get a record. Right. You don't have to be able to play it anymore. Yeah. You don't need a family member to play it. You right. put on the record and listen to it. So that's this stuff is fascinating to me of music and uh, recording technology, yeah, technology and reproduction rad- technology. Yeah. And, yeah. Recording technology yeah, yeah. definitely changes music. I don't think we understand that yeah. uh, as well as we probably should. That, right. that, you know, not just the technology of recording, but the te- technology of instruments, too. I mean, you were mm-hmm, saying, mm-hmm. you know, re- recording itself is now kind of, and editing and mixing and all that kind of stuff is part oh, of yeah. the process of making music. You know, there's, you know, auto-tuning now, right, where uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, pop stars are, have, you know, whatever. And it's like, that's, you know, when, when people first started auto-tuning, it was like, that's weird. Why are you doing that? And now it's like a standard, right? Yeah, like yeah, now yeah. pop stars do it all the time, and it's part of the experience of the music, right? Mm-hmm. And it's mm-hmm. like, well, you know, technology changes things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, uh, Golden Girls is back on in reruns. <laughs> <laughs> Did you just go to Golden Girls? <laughs> uh, yes, because... Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> because one of the things that blows me away is they have these episodes where they sing or they dance or they play piano, and they're, I think they're really doing it. I mean, obviously, they're obviously really singing and dancing, but there's even Betty White sits down at the piano, and she's... I think she's really playing. It looks oh, like probably, it may yeah. not be, but yeah. well, I mean, she. I mean, she's, she's of just a so particular general, a, yes. a particular generation, generation where she grew up in the sort of vaudeville circuit, right? Yeah. So she probably was a virtuoso in a lot of different kinds of yeah. uh, and uh, and um, B. Arthur too. Yeah, absolutely. All, you know, yeah, just amazing. And so you see them as these rounded performers, yeah, um, who can dance and sing and <laughs> act and make <laughs> jokes and you know, um, and it's just do we have that anymore? It's like it's 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 an exception now. Whereas right, I think it was much rare. more. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. People are oh, much more. The oh, the days of Tin Pan Alley and. <laughs> Pardon us, Harry and I will be transpi- transporting ourselves back through time. Apparently. <laughs> <laughs> so this is really just a general look at um, thinking about music and uh, Buddhism, uh, and uh, I don't know. That I think if to just sum up. Um, recognizing the impact of uh, recording technology and reproduction technology. Another thing we don't realize is we're bombarded with music now. It's yeah, almost too yeah, much. Yeah. Um, we're just bombarded all the time, all different genres, almost anywhere we go. You almost can't get away from it, you know, which is kind of interesting. You know, I, I love music, um, but recently I've kind of realized, you know, there's just almost too much um, Uh, um, what do you call that? 
it's it's like when riches information overload information overload yeah, and like a, yeah, yeah. Um, an embarrassment of riches embarrassment of riches <laughs> yeah, absolutely yeah, yeah. Um, it's kind of weird um, but you know being aware of that can can actually and actually we're manipulated by music a lot too oh in sure commercials sure, sure. Um, TV shows um, movies right music so I think as a Buddhist I like to have this awareness. You know, and to realize how I'm being manipulated or, or, you know, realize sometimes that, you know, like, yeah, this is a cool commercial. And you're like, wait, why? Because <laughs> I like the song, but I don't care about this item or whatever. And yeah, they, yeah. They're, they're tricking me. Um, and then, you know, the other question that, um, to keep in mind is, yeah, what is the music for? Why was it produced? Mm-hmm. But also, why is it being listened to? Right. Why is it being what participated? Yeah, 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 yeah. Is it performing? Yeah, yeah. What's the participation level of the various participants? Yeah. yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, a lot of the music yeah. we listen to now is very passive, right? We listen yeah. to a concert or whatever, but yeah. you know, uh, in, in the Buddhist context, a lot of the music is very uh, communal and particip- participatory. Right. So that would be the next uh, the next thing to think about. Yeah. I'm <laughs> sorry.